All right, we are continuing our journey uh, in the book of Exodus, and today is the last day of the sermon series uh, that we had called Echoes from the Exodus, the Journey of the Church so far. And we saw many parallels between um, what was going on for the people of God as they came out of bondage in Egypt uh, and became the nation of Israel. We've seen many parallels between us as individuals and us as Christ's community church. And so I encourage you um, to continue to kind of think through why, why these things are applicable to us. Is it, is it not important for us to continue to recognize that the greatest thing that God desires is that he could dwell with us as people? Is that a truth that we can ever kind of move on from and get tired of? Well, I would hope not because that is eternity, isn't it? That we will get to dwell with God. And you may say, but yeah, we get to do it perfectly instead of in this imperfect form and this confused form. But it is something that we should be desirous of and enjoying and thinking through. It is also important for us to remember that God is the great provider. Otherwise, we would not give anything, would we? If we lived in fear and felt like it all depended on us, think about how that begins to affect your lives. Think about that, what, what that makes you focus on and how stressful that can become. What, what's the main thing that tears a marriage apart? One word, money. Why? Where did that, how did that snake get in the garden and what did it whisper low? Did God really mean what he said when he would be your great provider? And think about how the greatest provision that he has given us is Christ, the Passover lamb, and that he gave what we needed the most, which was to be able to be restored to him in spirit and truth. And it is he who gave us that, not we who went and sought it and found it. No, he found us while we were what? Still yet his enemies. How gracious our God that he would come seeking his enemies. How many of you seek your enemies for reconciliation and not revenge? How many of you don't just avoid your enemies because you actually are probably fearing reconciliation? You, like Jonah, know exactly what God will do if you obey him. He will restore people that you would have no quarter with, that would not be welcome at your table. But how beautiful it is when he does things just like that. And how good is our God that he decided to make us into his people, an instrument, a treasured possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that he decided to make a band of rebels like us into something beautiful and something worthy and something that could be used for joy and glory. I don't know any of you that could confess and say, I don't want joy and glory, mister. I'll take sorrow and uncertainty if you don't mind. If you did admit that, I would have great respect for you because actually you would be closer to the Lord than those who say they want joy and glory but live completely opposite of that reality. And so we come to a place with the people of God who have been brought out of Egypt and have just begun the wilderness journey. They're about three months in and the Lord has brought them to this place called Sinai. Now, why is Sinai significant? What did he give them? Well, he gave them this thing called the law. Now, for some of you, you just heard a dirty word. You, you thought, maybe I cussed up here. No, I didn't. The law is not a dirty word, and it is not an epithet. It is actually a beautiful and glorious thing. Now, don't get scared. I'm not going to drift off into something weird here. But it is a beautiful and glorious thing because it is, it is the means of, and listen to me, the law was the means of covenant relationship. How could we ever, as sinners, know how to interact with a holy other God than us? Remember, His holiness would but consume us. We can't, we can't behold His glory. He cannot withstand, He can't tolerate our sin before Him. So how gracious He was to say, here is how you can interact with me between the now and the not yet of the first advent of Christ. How glorious that he gave us this means of being able to still enjoy him though we were still yet so far off. And not just him, but others as well. That we would have this means of being able to love our neighbor in a way that was genuine and true and could actually bring glory to him, our God. So here they are. They're on the verge of receiving this beautiful relational covenant document. It would also serve to expose exactly who they were and exactly what their need was. How good is God that he doesn't leave it to be some sort of riddle that we must figure out, but instead makes it crystal clear the distance between us. And not just the distance between us, but the means by which that distance could be crossed. And I don't use that term lightly. And so, 
as we are on the verge of Sinai. One commentator refers to this passage, Exodus 19, 1 through 6, as a poetic summary of covenant theology. Within these just short six verses, we will get a ton of theology, and, and, and its ordering is beautiful, and it is not to be missed, and it is something I think that we could easily just read right over and not think much about, but it is. It is beautifully poetic, and it describes covenant theology in summative form. And so for those of us, and for, there may be some of you who are saying, well, what in the world is covenant theology? Was that craziness? Well, covenant theology is just this understanding that from Genesis to Revelation is one story. And that all that God gave was good. And that it was to be for the good of His people because it all centered on what His will is and will be, which is to be restored to His people. And so there's no part of that that we can just lop off and leave out. There's not an Old Testament God who was angry and needed to be assuaged by His Son who basically said, Dad, don't kill him just yet. Let me try something. Now, how it went down, is it? No, God said, I don't want my people to die in their sin. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus, I'm sending you, the great missionary, to bring my people back to me. Restore the relationship in covenant form. A covenant is just a relational interaction document and idea. And so this is giving us a beautiful picture of that. So as we approach this text, I want us to think about a question. Let me tell you what the key truth is going to be this morning. So this is the thing that I want you to take away from the entirety of this service. It's that our horizontal purpose, now wait a minute, what does that mean? That means our purpose as far as between each other, between the nations, our horizontal purpose as God's people is to serve as a kingdom of missional priests in the various contexts into which we have been placed. Let me read that again, because it's going to be really critical going forward, because I know there's some introverts in here who have just shut down. I use the word missional, and you just, you're thinking, oh man, I don't want to hear another word this guy's saying. This is crazy. He's going to tell us to pass out tracks and scream at sinners, and I'm not doing that. And I don't blame you. I wouldn't either if I was an introvert. And I wouldn't do it. I'm an extrovert, and I wouldn't do it either. So here's what I'm saying. Our horizontal purpose as God's people is to serve as a kingdom of missional priests in the various contexts into which we have been placed. Now, that's really critical because a lot of times what you have as churches, and I don't want to be critical of anybody else who does it this way, but, but just I want you to understand how I'm thinking it through as your lead servant. We could have a ton of programs into which we could plug you in. And I've heard some people ask, hey, where are some ways in which I can get involved? How are some ways I can connect? Um, and that's great. And we do have some of that. We have the Sunday school class. We have the marriage class that's going on um, on Sunday night. So we have some opportunities for you to engage with those that are already confessing to be the people of God. But what I don't want to do is so dictate what it is that you are passionate about and the context in which you are in that you fail to see how you can be missional right where you are, right? The Lord who is sovereign has placed you in the job that you're in. The Lord who is sovereign has placed you in the school that you're in. The Lord who, who is sovereign has placed you in the family that you're in, right? And so, so often I think we, we look to the church to make something nice and tidy and easy that we can plug into and often not show up for and not feel very bad about. I'm uninterested in a consumeristic model of Christianity in the church. My desire and my hope from the text is what we will see is that the Lord who is sovereign has granted you a wide breadth of opportunities in which you can serve as a kingdom of priests in a missional fashion. And that that doesn't need to be dictated by any of us, we're here to equip you and help you understand that. So for instance, if you are in, a, say you're a business owner, and you're saying, well, how in the world can I be missional and think this through in full as a business owner? Because there's a ton of kind of things that kind of go into that, right? They're very complex. Well, we're, we're here to help you walk through that and think that through creatively. And so my main function for you, my hope is that my main function for you is to help disciple you to be better missionaries right where you are. And that it's not that I'm saying, no, we only care about Kennesaw. Or we only care about the homeless. Or we only care about this people group. No, I want us to, because many of you have access to and are connected to things that I will never see. You have people that will, that will never listen to me 
um, and, and, and may, never, may never come to this church, but I want you to be equipped to be able to show them the glory of the Lord our God because that is what you are called and shaped to be as the church. It's not just an Old Testament reality. Guess what? First Peter's going to say something very similar. In fact, all he's doing is quoting Exodus 19. So the question that we have before us is, and we want to make sure that we keep this in right order because we can get this messed up, can't we? We can become kind of social justice or missional justice and forget what's the primary purpose. But we got to remember, what is our vertical purpose? We've used this term horizontal, so vertical just means up and down. So what is our vertical purpose as God's people? Does anybody know the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one? Glorify God and, and enjoy Him forever. I love that. It's not just glorify God as some sort of stoic reality that glorify God and suffer. Because suffering is a brilliant hermeneutic. <laughs> it is, actually. But that ain't the whole of the story, thank goodness. And so we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And when that is our, we understand that's the foundational reality. That gives us the power and the wisdom and everything that we need to be a kingdom of priests. Amen? So for those of you who are introverts who are scared to death as to where this is going to go and how this is going to land on you like a, uh, you know, a, a sledgehammer, maybe covered in velvet, but a sledgehammer all the same, don't worry, the Lord your God, as you enjoy Him and you worship Him, He will show you, because guess what? For those of us who are extroverts, how good are we at admin and behind-the-scenes stuff? We are horrific, by the way, if you don't know. And we desperately need introverts to help organize and think through and pray and do all the things that they're uncomfortable, I would be horrifically uncomfortable with, or not very good at, we need that because we are the body, right? And just because you may not be on the front line, if you're making it it making those who are on the front lines, making it them more effective and more able to do what they're doing, guess what you are doing? You are being missional. Amen? But you're not free to do nothing and just read a book in the corner because you don't like people very much. You still have to care. You just may care for a smaller portion. And so I want to make sure that we're able to think through that distinction and be creative in this and not hear it just as something that is flat. So here we are on the verge of Sinai, and in the distance behind Sinai, we have a covenant that is very important and critical to this text and critical to our understanding of what it means to be missional, and that is the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis chapter 12. Remember, what does God say that Abraham's purpose is? To be a blessing to many nations, and through him will come many nations, and many nations will be blessed. Wait a minute now, that sounded plural to me. So it's not just that Abram was to create a people of God and that only that people, the Israelites, would be blessed, the Abrahamites. I made that word up, by the way. Don't, don't, I don't want any emails. So here's the deal. That's not what he said. He said through many nations. Now, it's, it's beautiful and it's interesting that Paul in Galatians chapter 3 calls the Abrahamic covenant what? The gospel. Whoa, wait a minute. What does that mean? That means it was good news. It was good news to everybody on the planet that that which God had actually deemed to be the purpose of all of humanity in Genesis chapter 1 was going to come to full fruition by his hand sovereignly. Because if you remember in Genesis 15, where was Abram in the midst of the covenant making? He was passed out in a deep darkness and didn't participate at all. None of it would depend on him. All of it would depend on the sovereignty and the glory of the Lord our God. That should be good news to us because the result of us seeking to serve as a kingdom of missional priests doesn't depend on us at all. It's just whether or not we get to participate in and see and enjoy what God is doing and will do without us. Remember, even the stones and the trees will cry out if we don't. So, I think it's incredible that he chooses to use us, and I think sometimes we have such a distortion on what that means, and we feel so burdened by a distortion on that truth. I want us to be free of that as much as we can, and I want us to be able to enjoy where God is at work, because where God is at work, there is joy and peace, amen? Isaiah 58 says it. Matthew 25 says it. So many of us who say, I just, I don't know, I just don't, I don't feel the Lord. My first question always is, well, where are you engaging? Where are you serving? Well, I, I tried reading Leviticus, and I just couldn't. Well, no kidding. I get it. It was a problem straight away. He's in there too now, and there's grace in there too, but it's harder for you to see if you're not engaging and applying what it is and who you are. 
right? So often we forget that the Lord is more interested in us serving as his kingdom of priests and for us to do all of these stoic duties. Reading your Bible is critically important and that's how you will know what it is you're being called to do and you'll know him, don't get me wrong. But if you think that that's all there is, you've missed a huge portion of the Christian life. And I don't want you to miss it because I have seen it and tasted and seen that it is good. And some of the richest moments in all of my Christian experience have been when I have served as a missional priest of the kingdom. So, let's read the text. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's word this morning. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So that tells us straight away that they're about three months out. And if you remember, how has it gone? How long did it take them to start raising all kind of cane? Didn't take long, did it? Less than a month out. In fact, they didn't even make it to the Red Sea and they were raising sand. And they didn't take them hardly a day or so to cross the Red Sea, sing this beautiful song of Moses, and then start raising all kind of cane again. It didn't take them long after that. And so, if you remember, there have been at least four instances coming up to here where they have just complained and complained and complained. And if you want a close-up view of what that looked like, please, by all means, go read the book of Numbers from start to finish, and God bless you. But it's in there. And so they're three months out, and then verse 2 says, They set up from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now, what's interesting about this is this is Moses being brought full circle. In Exodus 3.12, he is told, you're going to come back to this mountain. And you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna receive from me on this mountain. And, it's gonna, and, and this is going to be the sign to you that I am with you. So now we're seeing this prophetic word that was spoken in Exodus 3.12 beginning to come true. true. What do you think Moses was thinking as he was approaching the mountain? He was thinking, Lord, you are with me. I've heard the people complain and complain and complain, and yet I know that you are near. What a beautiful and glorious sight for Moses to be able to see what was unfolding and being fulfilled. Verse 3 says this, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now the reason that the Lord uses two different names there is he's reminding the people of something very significant. How large were they as the house of Jacob? Very humble beginnings. And remember, as the house of Jacob entering into Egypt, were they headed to the promised land? No, 400 years of slavery and oppression. And yet now he refers to them, not just as the house of Jacob, not just in view of their humble beginnings, they are the people of Israel. Now remember from last week at the Passover, it was the first time that the congregation came together and they were called a people in the Passover. And so now he's reminding them again that you are in fact a nation now. You no longer are the little house of Jacob that entered into Egypt to be overthrown and oppressed and to suffer. Now you are the people of Israel, a, a, a designed and distinct group. And that would have meant something to them hearing those words. And he goes on, verse 4. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now remember, this is the, this is the poetic summation of covenant theology. So notice where he begins. He begins with the law, right? What they're supposed to do. Right now where he started? No. Why do we start there? Why are we so quick to run to, Lord, I, what am I supposed to do? Because we got it wrong. We get it backwards, don't we? And we need help. And so what God is saying, let me, let me get you to first look back to the reality that you had no means for coming out of Egypt. Did they? Did they have any hope at all if the Lord were, were not to deliver them? In fact, what was Pharaoh making sure that they understood year by year by year? He was making sure that they understood in their slavery who, in fact, was small g God. He was. And so if it weren't for the Lord delivering them, bearing them up on eagles' wings. Now, what does that indicate was their role in the process? 
Active or passive? If you were born up on eagle's wings, how many of you would recognize it, hold on, you better hold on tight because you've got no control here. No, this is God saying, you were utterly passive. I delivered you. I, the Lord, your God. Remember first and foremost and never forget that I am the one who has saved you. I am the one who has delivered you, though you had no means of deliverance or salvation other than me, your God. For us as the people of God, that is the reality for which we must return again and again and again. And maybe some of you are like, look, I'm tired of hearing that. But I'll tell you exactly like I think it was Martin Luther who said to his folks who came to him and said, look, we're tired of hearing the gospel. And he said to them, well, I'll quit preaching it when you start living it. I'm not saying you're not living it, so don't hear that roughly. I've only been here for five weeks, so I don't know just yet. But I do think it's an important reality for us to return to because, again, how easily do we forget? How quickly do we step away just like the people of God? They had to be reminded in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that they, they didn't make their shoes not wear out. How many of you have the capability to keep your favorite pair of shoes or jeans or shirt from wearing out? None of us. And so they had to be reminded because they so easily forget. And if they forget, guess what we do? We are quick to forget. We are quick to say, yeah, thanks for my justification, but I'll take it from here. I'll take my sanctification in my own strength. You do participate in your sanctification, but it is certainly not by your strength that it comes to fruition and glorification when Christ returns. So this is an important reality, especially for those of us who adhere to covenant theology and for any of us who adhere to the gospel that we remember that we passively were saved, that we were enemies, we would have never come to him. And so this is why it's so important that we do the Lord's Supper on a regular basis because that table reminds us, doesn't it? You didn't set this table. You didn't provide what was necessary for this table to be real. It is not your broken body that we celebrate. It is not your spilled blood that we celebrate, but that of Jesus and Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. It's also important why we be reminded when we see a baptism, which we'll see in the coming weeks. We get to, again, bear witness to the reality that who among you could raise yourselves from the dead? Who among you could even bring yourself to newness of life? How many of you make New Year's resolutions? And in what trash heap do they lay? And so, and we call that, I'm just being emancipated from the rules I made up. Really? That's strange. Whole nother aspect of things. So, critical that we start where the Lord starts in reminding ourselves of who he is and that he has borne us up on eagle's wings. Now, the reason that that's really, really critically important is because so often we try to begin with the law. We try to say, well, no, what's important is what God has told us to do. No, what's important is that God has delivered you. Being told to do something comes next. Verse 5, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So right away, he's gone from pointing them backward and telling them to recognize with the fullness of their senses who he is to them. And now he says of the present reality, now this is critical, now that I have delivered you, I am worthy of your worship. This is why I, I, I place the question in how, how does that which is vertical affect that which is horizontal? Because if we are not worshiping first and foremost and remembering the past reality, what we offer vertically is of no, or horizontally is of no consequence whatsoever. We are not offering anything anyone else couldn't find of their own accord and abilities. So it's critical that we recognize that the present reality is that we are called to be obedient. We are called to, to recognize the law of God. We are called to honor and glorify him. So how hard is that? Infinitesimally hard if you're trying to do it in your own strength. Glorious if you're in union with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, what's, what's beautiful is that the, the, the same commands have been, they have not changed. And there's only two of them. And I know that I just set up a false dichotomy because those two are incredibly hard, aren't they? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Who among you thinks you could ever do that in a billion years in your own strength? It is only when he looks upon you and sees Christ's righteousness applied to you by faith alone through grace alone 
which is that first pass reality, that you can do the first command at all. And the second is like it, which is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor in what way? As yourself. And since we're great self-lovers and we make sure that we are clothed in nice things and we eat good food and all those kinds of things, should we not desire the same human flourishing for our neighbor? But greater than that, should we not also desire that our neighbor know the eternity that we will know someday? That they would know and be able to worship the God who is good, who dwells with his people. Why would we not want them to have that as well? Why are we so concerned about what they think about us instead of what they think about God? And more importantly, how God knows them. Listen, I am guilty. I am guilty of being worried about what somebody thinks about me. I'm guilty of of being more concerned with whether or not they're going to declare me a zealot or like one of those Christians than I've ever been concerned with their eternal destiny. And that grieves me to my core. And I'll tell you, it's a a progressive battle. Um, It's an incredible thing. In fact, there's a thorn that is deep in my flesh. Early when I was a, a new believer, my wife uh, was going to a local church, and so when we got married, I just, not knowing anything any different, just went to the church that she went to, and I remember there was a lady there named Jan, and Jan had fallen and hurt, and she hurt her leg in some way, and she had crutches, and I'm a physical therapist by trade. I used to make money hurting people, which was glorious, and so uh, <laughs> now I just irritate them, I guess, I don't know, and so, uh, and so there, she had these crutches, and they were ill-fitted, What a perfect entry. The physical therapist who can spot these things from a mile off. But the thing that I also noticed about Jan is that she reminded me of my mother. And my mother was an addict all of her days up until her death in 2001 when she overdosed and died. And the Lord spoke and said, go and speak to Jan. She needed encouragement. And I said, Lord, I won't won't go. My excuses were many. I'm new here. It'll be weird. I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm not gifted at this. I, 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 I. A week later, Jim Meldrum, the pastor, got up and he was very grieved. And he said, it grieves me to let you all know that Jan has died. She overdosed. Now, here's the thing. I didn't kill Jan. I didn't. I'm not that sovereign. And that's good news. But what I do know is this, is that every time I think about her and every time I think about that moment, I am grieved deep in my soul. And when he said it, my wife can tell you, it was as if the Lord rent me in two. I just, I doubled over in agony and pain because I knew that I had been disobedient and I had opened the door for the devil to now whisper low into my ear, look at what you really are, murderer. I don't believe it, but it is still a chilling voice, is it not? And so I say that to say to you, don't, don't earn the thorn in the flesh in this way. If the Lord moves in you, seek to be aware of where the Lord is speaking and is calling you to be obedient and calling you to share winsomely this opportunity for grand human flourishing which comes only in Christ. By no other means is there that we could flourish for an eternity. There are many means by which we can flourish for the temporal. And even that is probably questionable. There's only one way in which we can flourish for time infinitum. So, um, here the Lord is calling us to be obedient. And he's calling us to be obedient to that which he has declared most important. And if you think about it, every law funnels back to one of those two commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Or to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that is the obedience to which we are called, the present reality. And the result is this, listen. He says, and you shall be my treasured possession among all the nations. Now that is something that is a little bit lost on us because in the Hebrew, what's really being said there is this is, a, this is something that would have been unique to the king alone. A treasured possession would have been something that he took great pride in and joy in, and he would have shown to all. 
How many times do you hear Paul say it is a great joy to us that we have heard that you have been kind to the saints and we take great joy and glory in that. And this is even greater than that. This is the Lord saying, this is my people who have been fashioned for my purpose. They are treasured possession. Think about how great it is that the creator of the universe would condescend and care at all about who and what we are. How arrogant it is of us to not care what the Lord thinks of us at all, to think that we could ever rise to any measure of glory greater than that which he could bestow upon us. Amen? And so he says, you will be my treasured possession. And he goes on, as if that were not near enough, he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Let me stop for just a second. Now, the Levitical priesthood has not yet been created. Levi has not yet come. And so it is important that we recognize he's not asking for us to be mediators in the sense that we are to administer sacrifices and all that comes with the specific priesthood. What he's speaking of here as a kingdom of priests is that we are to serve in a priestly function caring about what happens to the rest of the world. And that we are to be ministering to the needs and the hurts. Did you not hear what Isaiah 1 said? How beautifully he said, who has told you to bring in this trampling of my courts? And notice what he said was the problem. What did he say was the problem? Because they did new moon and Sabbath. They were doing all of the religious stuff they were told to do. But what they weren't doing was being a kingdom of priests. What was their view of the oppressed and the widow and the orphan? They didn't care. They didn't care what happened to those people because they were the treasured possession of God and let everything else burn. Notice how wrong they got it. And he said in great grace, come, let us reason together so that you would be made as white as snow, so that your crimson would be purified to the whitest of wool. Now is that somehow to suggest that we are only to be concerned with social justice issues? No, it is not. We are to be concerned with issues even greater still, but that is inclusive and often indicative of where our heart is. If we don't care what happens to the least of these, where in the world are we to care about those who have greater needs? And so he's saying to them that I am calling you to specifically be a vessel for my using to let the nations know that I love them that they are not firewood and that they are not to die in their sin because I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want you to minister to the needs before the people representing me, your God, evidencing that I dwell with those whom I love. All that they've been learning in this Exodus experience was to be applied in this reality. That they were to teach the nations that the Lord provides. They were to teach the nations that there was a means by which they could be saved and redeemed. The greatest of flourishing. And he even says to them, I'm calling you to be a holy nation. Now does holy mean better than? No. And see, that was the categorical problem, right? They eventually thought they were better than everybody else, didn't they? They thought they were the unique treasured possession as opposed to the vessel for his glory, the thing to be used for God's glory, the missional tool. When we called him to be a holy nation, he just meant that they would be set apart. And see, this is the passage I often hear people struggle with in 1 Peter where he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. What's that mean? Oh, that means to be perfect, right? We can't ever mess up. Between the now and the not yet. Well, woe be unto us because we all have. Probably just this morning. Maybe even right now. And so when he says, be ye holy for I am holy. What he's saying there is to reflect who I am to the nations. That you are to be covered and made righteous in Christ alone. So that the nations can see who, exactly who I am. It's not about the nations seeing who we are and that's it. It is that they would look to us and see who God is uniquely. We are his priestly representatives, are we not? And that's what he's telling this little nation of Israel, these 2.5 million people who've just bounced out of Egypt. He's telling them, that is what I want you to be. And notice, has he yet given them the law? Any of you who know Exodus? That's interesting because we've made so much out of the law. 
We've made so much out of knowing what is right from wrong and what we are to do. He just told you. And the law is going to be the instrument that helps them do that better. Amen? The promised land is going to be the, the, the missional satellite from which they will do that even better. Now here's our conundrum here at Christ Community Church uniquely. And that's if we're not careful. And I'm not accusing anyone of this, by the way, so don't read into anything I'm saying. But what I am saying is we run, we're in danger. See, we're in danger because you guys have been tabernacling for 13 years. Those of you who have been here the whole time, almost 14. What's tabernacling mean? Setting up and tearing down. Now, show of hands, who loves setting up and tearing down? You are among the most holy of all, whoever you are. Um, I don't enjoy it, and you don't either. Let's be honest. And so there's a sense at which it feels like the journey is about getting into a permanent space, is it not? That finally when we get into a permanent space, we can relax, right? Now Cameron can take it from here because we paid him to do that. (laughs) Well, no. No, getting into a permanent space, my hope is what that will do is actually grant us greater opportunity to do what we have been called to do. That those who have set up and torn down, who I'm so thankful for that you've been so diligent to do it, Thank you, but that you would be relieved of chairs and cords and cloth and instead would be released to do the ministry to the people that is so necessary. And now you have the energy to truly be the missional priest to whom you have been fashioned and called. Amen? So the building, the purpose of the building is that we would have a space from which to be able to serve the Lord in greater measure in his people. And yet we are still a ways off, are we not? There's still some time left. We don't know. It could be one year. It could be two years. It could be more. Let us not grow weary in doing good. But let's make sure that we understand what doing good really is and not what it's not. Because we really get weary in seeking to try to do that which we have claimed to be good and ain't what God called us to do. This happened to me at the Macon Rescue Mission. When I first became a chaplain there some 10 10 years ago, I went in and this was my mindset is we're going to build relationships, man, and we're going to love on people. And yeah, I may preach the gospel, but you got to be careful, man. These people are wounded. They're beat up. They don't need all that stuff. Yes, I was wrong. And it didn't take but about two or three months, and I was exhausted, and all my volunteer team was exhausted, and we were ready to be done. Is that what God called us to the Make and Rescue Mission to do, is to be totally worn out and destroyed? And I remember praying, saying, Lord, I'm done. And and I think God said, good. Because what you're doing is not what I called you to do in the first place, preach the gospel. And so I began at that moment to preach through books of the Bible. I started with the Gospel of Mark. It took a year and a half. Be not afraid. We're not going to necessarily do that here. But it was a glorious time, and we saw the greatest growth among the people at the rescue mission that we had seen. And even folks at the mission testified about it. They said, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, keep doing it. And so how often we get it out of order, don't we? And one of the reasons that we get so weary is we have ceased to understand or forgotten who God is and what truly is good. So God here is reminding and setting it up for his people. Hear what Mike Cosper says of this passage. He says, God intervenes and redeems first. That's critical in the ordering of things. The law doesn't come first. What you are to do doesn't come first. Your redemption is primary. God intervenes and redeems first. Then he calls his people to respond to their rescue by living the new identity he has given them. All of God's demands come in the light of what God has done to rescue Israel. He will live in their midst and they will truly be a beacon to the world because of that reality. What a glorious thing that God moves first and we're not required to do all of these things first. He empowers us to be what he's called us to be through his redemption. So the question I have for you is, what did God require of you before he redeemed you? What what, what did he say you had to do before he would love you? The answer to the question is nothing. Nothing. And you may say, well, that's that. No, wait a second. What about faith? Well, what is faith? But confessing that you are nothing and you have nothing to bring to the table. And only God has everything that is necessary for redemption. 
And what does he require, you after, require of you now that he's redeemed you? He requires that you would glorify him and live in that new reality and serve as a kingdom of priests. And that requirement is for your good, for our good, for our deeper understanding of who and what he is so that our faith would be strengthened, not made more neurotic. Listen to what John Golden Gay says. He says, the fact that Exodus 19, 3-8 is a form of reworking of Genesis 12, 1-3, it reminds us that this designation links Yahweh's lordship over the whole world and works toward the world's inclusion rather than exclusion. The stretching of the royal priesthood to include other peoples, i.e. Revelation 1-6, is, is in keeping with the Abrahamic vision. This is why it's incredibly important for us from a covenant theological perspective is we have the gospel early on. The God of grace begins very early on and promises that he will be with and redeem his people. So what situations or contexts are you engaged in where people who may not know the redemptive God get the chance to see him, witness him through you? It's a great question and you need to ask it of yourself. So what are the contexts? Where are you such that those who don't know God as the redeeming God or have a confused vision of who he is or don't think he exists at all, what kind of context are you in where they get to witness that of you? The answer is every single one in which you are in because there are lost people in every single solitary context or confused people about the truth of this redemptive, loving, covenant God. And so... The next question becomes, how then do you live such that they can begin to witness that reality? Now, you may take the misquotation from St. Francis, he never said this by the way, and say, well, you share the gospel and if necessary, use words. No, you always have to use words because there's no way people can get to who Christ is without the words spoken. And each of you is uniquely gifted in being able to share that in unique ways. And if you're not even asking to be equipped because of your fear, and you're not asking to be equipped because you're saying you're not called to that, you're wrong. And we're here for you, and that's, what we want, that's how we want to serve you. And I want to be incredibly creative in how we do that, whether it's a high school student, whether it's a middle school student who the, the Lord begins to work in, or a college student, or a stay-at-home mom, or somebody who's an artist, or somebody who's in actuarial sciences, or somebody, I don't know how you share it in that context, we'll work on that, man, I promise. <laughs> But, but, you know, or you're Jonathan Stuckert at RTS, and guess what? Some unbelievers have come through that joint. And it's really important that we not ever take for granted at all whom we are surrounded by and care for them. Now, the place where you start, instead of you saying, okay, I'm going to charge hell with a water pistol. I'm going to do what Cameron said. I'm going I'm to get all in it. I'm going to wear a T-shirt that says, I love God, and you should too. No, that's not what I'm saying. I, what I'm saying is you need to begin in prayer. What does prayer confess? Prayer confesses that you are not able to do it in your own strength. Prayer confesses that you don't know how to begin this conversation. You don't even know where to start, but you know the one who does. And that that prayer confesses that you believe the Spirit's going to do exactly what Christ and God sent him to do. Is that he would equip you and lead you and guide you. And that ain't hard at all, really, to take time to stop and say, all right, Lord, I don't know that I really like Cameron yet, but I'm going to ask this question. You know, what, how am I to live missionally in the context in which I'm in? Remember, what does heaven do when but one sinner comes to know God as, as Lord and Father through Christ? The greatest party that we have never seen breaks out. And what if that's all you're called to in this life is that one person? Is that just not enough? Well, it better be. And so I don't care if it's only one person that you reach in the whole of your lifetime. It's not up for me to decide what's good and what's not. But we should care enough at least to try and, and love those around us. So would you, would you at least commit to begin by praying? Would you be so audacious as to actually utter the words and say, Lord, Help me to understand how to be the kingdom of priests you fashioned me to be in the context in which I'm in, and where do I need to go to get the resources necessary to do this thing? John Durham says this, Israel, 
as a kingdom of priests, is Israel committed to the extension throughout the world of the ministry of Yahweh's presence. A kingdom not run by politicians depending upon strength and connivance, but by priests depending on faith in Yahweh, a servant nation instead of a ruling nation. We are not to coerce people. What we are to do is represent the very presence of God in the midst of the circumstances in which we are in. And that occurs in a variety of ways based on your giftings, based on how you're wired. Again, the introvert-extrovert deal has a big impact. My wife, as you might imagine, is utterly different than me. And she doesn't use a ton of words, but when she does, they matter. And it was interesting to see how on her job, she worked at a pest control company. If you know anything about pest control companies, it's a greater soap opera than anything you've ever witnessed in your life. I don't know why, but it's just true. Men are crazy when they get all together in pest control circumstances. Maybe it's the chemicals. I don't know. But they honored her and they witnessed in her something utterly different and other. And it was interesting to see how that paved the way for me to show up at the Christmas parties and pray and say really religious things. But they really saw, and she had an opportunity to bear witness to one of her co-workers who was going through a terrible divorce and a very difficult time. And she still honors and loves Susan to this day and checks on her. And so it's not that you have to say a whole bunch. It's just what you say does matter in recognizing that reality and truth. So what situations and contexts are you engaged in where people who don't know the presence and the love of God get a chance to witness him through you? I mean, they, do people recognize that there's at least something different about you and about who dwells with you? 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, I'm not going to read that, but that's something that you can look into maybe this week in your devotional time. It would be a great thing for you to go back and think through the sermon and look at how the New Testament applies this reality. But, but, but Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. You who were once not a people have been brought together to become an instrument for God's glory. And you're such an instrument for God's glory it's so that even those who deny God on the day in which God returns can do nothing but say, He is God, based on your, how you lived. So we know that Israel failed miserably at this, right? They don't get it right at all. They weren't a very good kingdom of priests. In fact, they get in the promised land, they get fat, and they get happy, and they deny God, and they begin to worship foreign gods, and God puts them in a little J judgment in exile. But yet Christ fulfills perfectly what Israel was supposed to be and become. He becomes the high priest. And for those of you who want to do some devotional reading, I commend to you the book of Hebrews, which talks about his priestly function. So this, this which Christ has done grants us, the church, the ability to become that which God had designed and desired for us to be and do. And so, as the royal priesthood, I want to give you just a few things which interestingly matches the sermons that we have preached thus far that we are to represent in this world. We, are, we, as the royal priesthood, are to represent God's ongoing presence in a fallen world. How many times have people said, I don't believe in God because as I look around, I don't see any evidence of him anywhere? Well, what's that an indictment of uh, on you? Because you are standing before them, and they're not seeing it in you. So how could you begin to represent that reality? And, and that we would recognize that we are called to represent the presence of God in a dark and a fallen world. And that, that looks like not when someone is grieving and suffering, going to them and saying, well, there must be some sort of sin for which you are being judged. Whose sin, this man or his family? Neither. It is for the glory of God. So how can you step into the midst of suffering and abide with people and do it in such a way that they recognize the presence of the Lord? Because remember, the law didn't come first. And why does the Lord have you uniquely in that circumstance to represent his presence so that they could come to know that which is primary, that he loves them and he's seeking to redeem them? Second thing is that we are to represent God's faithful provision for our deepest of needs. Again, what do most people struggle with in our society, and our culture? They struggle with that, that they're worried about not having enough. Think about when the market crashed and all the things that have happened. What did it do to people? When do the greatest uh, suicide attempts occur? Usually around market crashes. Why? Because people are afraid that nothing will be provided and that all that they have is lost. 
And then we are to represent God's mercy and grace and his patience and his steadfast love and his forgiveness and his justice. Right? Remember, that's, that was God's confession, Exodus 34. We are to represent all of those things that he is. Not because we ourselves are those things, but because he is and he dwells in us. And then we're to, we're to represent the means of grace as opportunities to engage God on a regular basis. We are to offer to people the opportunity to hear his word and to engage in and witness baptisms and to engage in and witness the Lord's Supper being taken by God's people. Though it may pass over them, there's something powerful about them being able to bear witness. So are you afraid to welcome them into your worshiping community? That is a way in which you can represent so, what would those around you say that you represent? If we were to ask them, what would they say that you were about? Feels like an indicting question, doesn't it? That's a heavy question, isn't it? But remember what came first, not the indictment, but the redemption. Remember that it is the redemption that sets you free to be free from the indictment, but to empower you to actually live it out in spirit and truth and ultimate reality. Amen? Yes, it would be infinitesimally hard and a heavy yoke if it were not that his redemption came first. So remember the ordering of things. Remember this poetic summation of covenant theology. So as we close this sermon in prayer, and Tim and those guys are going to come up, uh, you have an opportunity as, during these last couple of songs, I would even say begin to pray and ask the Lord how you might be used of him in this priestly fashion. There will be elders in the back corner to pray with you if you're saying, hey, I, I want to wrestle with this question. We're here for you. That's what we want to do. We want to meet with you. And don't worry that by saying that, somehow we'll think less of you as a Christian. I've already confessed to you that I've failed miserably. And it's still going to be an ongoing battle in a progressive fashion. The deacons are also here. For those of you who are saying, I don't even know how to begin to be a priest because I have such earthly needs that need to be met. I, have, I, I need mercy. I need help. They're here for you too. And the purpose of that is to help you be free of the things of this world so that you can actually serve as whom God has fashioned you in his image to be. So we want to make sure that you know we are here for you. And that we want to serve you in this fashion. So as I pray and as we sing these last couple of songs, uh, keep those things in mind and take time this week to seek the Lord in these things. Go back and read devotionally, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Look at those different things. Re review those questions with your family and let, us be, let it be a blessing to us, his people, that he has redeemed us first, called us to obedience and equipped us and given us all that we need so that we could be his treasured possession, a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you redeemed us first. Thank you that you've equipped and given us the means by which we could glorify and honor and enjoy you. Thank you that we are your treasured possession. In Christ's name, amen.